Welcome to the About Her podcast. I'm your host, Abigail O'Neill, and I am so thankful that you are here. Welcome to this very first Ask Her Anything episode. I do have to admit from the beginning that it is a bit intimidating to jump into this episode because it's much different answering the questions than it is asking the questions. But I am also so excited to chat with you personally for a little bit and to answer the questions that you all have sent my way. If you're unfamiliar with what Ask Her Anything is, it's basically just the last episode of every podcast season in which I try to answer questions that you have. So over the past couple of weeks and months, podcast listeners have sent questions my way that I have prayed over and that I have looked into, and today I'm going to be sharing the answers with you that I have come up with. These questions will be addressed in no particular order in today's episode. Some questions are personal questions about me, others are advice questions, and there are also a few theology questions. So let's go ahead and jump into the first question, which was actually the most popular question or the most frequently asked question, and it was about my husband and I. So the first question says, how did you and your husband meet and how long have you been married? My husband and I have been married for four and a half years. We met when we were pretty young, around late middle school to early high school. I'm a bit older than Caleb, so he was in middle school, but I believe I was in between 8th and ninth grade, if not in ninth grade. Caleb's dad began working as the worship director at the church where my family attended and my family, my dad, was serving as the bivocational discipleship pastor. Caleb and his brother quickly became friends with my younger brother, who is just a few years younger than I am, and after they became friends, my brother would often have Caleb, his brother, and his other friend, guy friends over a couple times a week to hang out. They played video games, they played airsoft, they just hung out at our house. So at this time, I considered my brother's friends to be like family because they were around so often and they really did feel like my brother's. I even have prayer journals with prayers in them for the quote-unquote guys, and I called them the guys, but it's just my brother's friends. But I prayed for them because my brother's friends were really like brothers to me too, and I, I didn't really realize over the years, these years, that Caleb was actually interested in me and that he had had a crush on me. Because to me, he was my best friend and he was my little brother. And I feel really bad now that all the details have been filled in. I feel bad that I called him my little brother because I put him in the quote-unquote brother zone. But I also think we could give Caleb props for making it out of the brother zone because clearly that's impressive. And we went from being like brother and sister, being best friends, to now being married. So I definitely think that we can give Caleb mad props for that. But I will go ahead and just share with you a few of the details of how we went from being like best friends to dating and then to now being married. One summer when we were in high school, I attended a worship camp at Cedarville University and my brother and his friends, Caleb included, also attended this same camp because we are all on the same worship team together at church. Caleb was the leader of our youth worship team, and so we all attended this camp so that we could grow as a worship team, but also so that we could grow individually as um, individual worshipers and also just as musicians. So at this camp, each camper auditions or tries out at the beginning of the camp, and then you're placed on a team with other campers based upon your skill level. The auditions and the tryouts aren't necessarily to see how good you are at something. It really is just to even out the playing field and make sure each team has varying skill levels on the team. 
So you spend just about every moment of the week with the team that you are placed with. You are practicing together, you attend meals together, you do everything with the team that you are placed with. This particular summer and this particular worship camp, Caleb and I ended up on the same team. So we spent a lot of time hanging out and it was during this week that I began recognizing just how respectful and kind he was and how much he anticipated my needs and paid attention to me. He offered to throw away trash after every meal. He opened doors for me. He refilled my water bottle when we <laughs> when he noticed that it was empty. And this doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was during this camp week because we are we were both singing so much that your voice gets tired and you want to be sure that you're drinking a lot of water. So he would every so often just go fill up my water bottle without asking, which meant a lot to me. And he also would walk me back to the dorm after practice each night just to make sure I wasn't having to walk back at night when it was late alone. So he just took good care of me and these things caught my attention because I realized how well he cared for me as a sister and as a sister in Christ. And even before this week, I also just remember he would often pray for me and he would text me just to see how he could pray for me during that particular time in the word that he was spending. And I just, during this week, noticed just how much he cared and was taking care of me. I began to wonder if he was interested in me as more than just a sister and a friend just because of how much he was taking good care of me. Things felt different, and on the second to last night of camp, as we were practicing our harmonies together for the worship night that evening, I looked at him after playing something on piano in the practice room, and he was just kind of watching me and had this different look on his face. He was paying attention to me, and in that moment... Though it sounds cheesy, I just pictured him as my future husband. I realized how interested I was in him and knew he could end up being my husband, that we could end up having a really neat relationship in which he made me better and he cared for me well and I cared for him well. And it just, things felt different in that moment and I really thought he could be my husband. The next morning, I brought up just the awkwardness of that moment and just addressed it with him, and he shared with me that he had actually been interested in me for a few years. He mentioned that he had been waiting for the right time to pursue a relationship because he wanted to be sure we were both ready and mature and old enough for it to be a God-honoring and long-term relationship. But we left and went about our lives, and we both just kind of prayed about what we wanted to do regarding our feelings for each other and eventually toward the end of that summer started dating. We dated throughout all of high school and throughout college and then got married in between his sophomore year and junior year of college and my junior year and senior year of college. So that is how we met, how we started dating, and how long we have been married. But if you have any other questions about us or our marriage, always feel free to ask. We are open books and we would be happy to answer. The next question says, what are some of your favorite pastimes outside of podcasting? So I have a lot of pastimes, a lot of different hobbies, but I love to bake and to eat desserts. I enjoy running a few times a week. I love to sing, especially alongside Caleb, my husband. We sing often around the house, in the car, and together on our worship team at our local church. I also enjoy cooking with my husband. I enjoy exploring new places and spending time with my family and siblings. And every week, my husband and I actually spend at least one night with our families or with our siblings, and they really are some of our best friends. So we love watching TV shows and movies with them and just laughing and hanging out with our siblings. The next question says, aside from Bible reading and prayer, what is something you do every day that increases your love and joy for Jesus more? So I love this question, but 
The first thing that came to my mind, and it might sound silly, is I think the simple tasks I do around the house often remind me of the kindness of the Lord. And by saying that, I want to make sure that I clarify, I'm not saying that I am good at them or that our house is always tidy and put together. Honestly, quite the opposite. But many of these tasks like making dinner and doing the laundry or the dishes and just tidying up the living, tidying up the living room, these things happen every day. And almost every time they are checked off my to-do list and I see our home go from chaos to order, I'm reminded One, that our God is a God of order who has kindly welcomed us into his own household. And two, that God has blessed my husband and I beyond what we could have ever imagined with a home to steward well and to rest in so that we're able to serve him well again tomorrow. So do I enjoy every household task or... Do I always get them done in a timely manner every single day? No, but these mundane everyday tasks cause me to remember the providence and the goodness and the kindness of the Lord, even on my least grateful days. The next question says, what are you currently reading and have you read any good books recently? So lately, I have been reading a couple different things. For school, I am currently finishing up Confessions by Augustine, and also starting The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. I also have been reading for another class. Um, it's called A Life That Says Welcome by Karen Eamon. Eamon? I don't know how to say her last name, but it's just a great book on hospitality that I have been reading for a hospitality class. And then personally, when I do have time, which I don't have much of, but when I do have time to read just for fun and for personal enjoyment, I have been reading Weep With Me by Mark Vogrup and Let Me Be a Woman by Elizabeth Elliot. The next question is very insightful, but it says, how do you fight the desire for self-sufficiency in your own marriage? I love this question, but I also have to say I'm a bit convicted by this question because I could certainly be more aware of this temptation in my own life. I appreciate that the woman who asked this question has reminded us to be alert in this way, and I would also say that the temptation to be negatively self-sufficient It not just a problem for married women. It is just as easy to isolate ourselves and to refuse to participate as a team member at work and at church and in many other settings as well. So when I'm answering this question, I think what I have to say in regards to self-sufficiency in my marriage could also be applicable in other areas as well if you are not married yourself. So if you are not married, don't tune out just yet. Hopefully I can have something to say for you as well. But in my marriage, I would say the desire to be self-sufficient most often arises when I am frustrated with my husband or when he is making a decision that I would want to make differently. Fortunately, this doesn't happen often, and Caleb and I are most often on the same page. However, there are definitely times when one of us feels differently than the other, And when this happens, I do notice that my thoughts about Caleb or the thoughts I have about Caleb that are directed toward Caleb, they begin to take a different tone. I begin to think of myself more highly than I ought, more highly than I think of Caleb, and I'm tempted to pridefully disregard Caleb's opinion or his leadership because I, for some reason, believe I could lead our family better. Whenever thoughts like these begin circling in my mind, I almost always also hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit telling me that what I am choosing to believe in those moments isn't true. The Holy Spirit often convicts me regarding words that I want to say or that I have said, and the Lord is faithful even in my weakest and worst moments to correct me 
graciously, I just don't always want to hear it. And to be frank, I don't always listen and end up having to ask both the Lord and Caleb for forgiveness because I didn't follow the prompting of the Spirit. So to answer your question, I would say first that the Holy Spirit himself helps me fight the desire for self-sufficiency in my own marriage. And if you're a female believer too, I would encourage you to ask the Lord to increase your awareness of similar promptings or similar patterns of behavior and just to ask the Lord to help you listen as you feel and hear those promptings. I know I would benefit from praying the same and reflecting upon those thoughts in my own marriage today. I guess I would also just like to say that it is important to remember why women feel a tension between humbly following the leadership of men in our life and a desire to just do everything ourselves because we think we could bring about a better outcome. From the beginning, women have wrestled with this tension because I do really believe it goes back to the curse, back to the garden. This tension we experience is a consequence of the fall in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It is important to note that theologians have debated the exact meaning of the final line, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. But many, including myself, would suggest that this verse helps us understand why attention exists in the relationship between men and women and husbands and wives. And Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, a woman who has greatly contributed to the conversation regarding a biblical model of womanhood, she says, Theologians have talked a lot about what the phrase means, but here's what I think it comes down to. God is saying you will have the urge or the impulse to oppose your husband, to control your husband, and to act against him. Later in the same presentation, she also says, So the man and the woman who were intended to live in oneness and harmony, God says now your impulse as a woman will be to control the men, to act against them. It's the battle of the sexes. He will rule over you sometimes in ways that are not appropriate. I would love to dive into this topic deeper in a future podcast episode, but for the purpose of this episode and this question in particular, I think it's just important to recognize that this battle of the sexes exists and to pinpoint where it stems from. So if we simply ignore it, we allow the enemy to twist the beauty of God's design, and in doing so, we give him a foothold to greatly harm far too many marriages. When we recognize that our temptation to be self-sufficient in the context of our marriage is a problem dating back to the curse, I think we'll be more readily aware of the danger in listening to the enemy as he tempts us to follow his model as opposed to God's. And I guess so secondly, I would just say it's vital to be aware of the reasons behind our desires for self-sufficiency. And it's also imperative. It's not embarrassing to ask for help from older women in the church when self-sufficiency becomes a pattern in our own marriages. There's probably a lot more that could be said in response to this question, but I would say in general, the Holy Spirit is a great source of comfort and conviction that helps me to fight self-sufficiency in my own marriage. And also that this issue really does date back to the fall that women have been wrestling with this tension since the beginning. That helps me by providing a language to understand what's happening in my own mind when I am wrestling with these thoughts. And also is just comforting to know that when I do need help, when I do have to ask for help from an older woman, that she likely has, has experienced this and that other women around me are as well. That's comforting to know, but also should compel us to ask for help when we need it because we shouldn't be embarrassed if it's something that other women struggle with. So that's my answer to that question. 
The next question is very difficult to answer, but it says, can you share your favorite dessert recipe and why it is your favorite? I will say it feels a bit like I'm trying to pick my favorite sibling or my favorite future child by answering this question. It's difficult, but I do certainly have a few go-to recipes. So my favorite dessert in general is either key lime pie or tiramisu. You also really can't go wrong with a warm chocolate chip cookie and ice cream. But as far as favorite dessert recipes go, Caleb and I make chocolate chip cookies pretty often. Probably about once a month, we will make a full batch of chocolate chip cookie dough that we scoop onto a cookie tray and freeze for later. I try to have frozen cookie dough in the freezer most of the time, just in case we have last minute guests. But other desserts I return to pretty often are also the Magnolia Table Oatmeal Cookies, Oatmeal Cream Pie Cookies, and Madeline's. They're basically just a little shell-shaped cake that you eat warm, and they're delicious with tea or with coffee. And then because it's also currently fall right now, I do really love the pumpkin whoopie pies with orange ginger cream frosting by Elizabeth and Butter. Elizabeth and Butter is one of my favorite bloggers, my favorite blogs to read for dessert recipes. She always has some great ones. And I will link all of these recipes that I just mentioned on my website. If any of you love to bake and want to go bake these, they're all delicious. But as I told you, it's hard to pick a favorite. So I gave you a few. <laughs> I also really love this next question. Someone asked, what regular practices have you found helpful? So there are a number of practices I could mention that I find helpful. Of course, Bible reading, a growing prayer life, regular church attendance. These are your typical answers, and all of those are definitely important because we do grow when we're in the Word. We grow in communication with God, and we grow in community with fellow believers. But I want to give a couple answers that are unique to what the typical answers are, and I will say, number one, journaling. I will always advocate for the practice of journaling. My grandmother was an avid journaler, and after she passed away, I read through all of her, well, many of her journals, and I knew the moment I was reading through her journals that I also wanted to write down my own legacy so that I could pass that down to my future daughters if I have them or granddaughters. I have journaled ever since the day that I read through hers almost daily, and I was 14 at the time. So over the years, I have accumulated a number of journals that I love looking back through myself as well. But this practice has really caused me to grow in so many ways through introspection and self-evaluation. My own prayer life has increased, and I also am more readily aware of the Lord's specific answers to prayer, because when I pray them and I write them down, I'm able to go back and to look at the ways that he's answered a particular prayer or the ways that he's um, provided above and beyond what I expected. So I'm able to look back and see exactly what I have prayed for, exactly what my communication with the Lord was on particular days, and I can just read through those. And it's a great encouragement to me and also provides just a great way to see the ways that I have grown and the Lord has grown me in my sanctification as well. Another practice that I would say is helpful in my life, though, is just the act of serving and being involved in a community group or a Bible study or a small group. 
as I said earlier, we grow in the context of community. So I highly recommend finding a way to surround yourself with other believers beyond just your regular church attendance. So you could serve in the nursery, you could join the worship team, you could join a Bible study or a small group. Just definitely make it a habit to serve in the church because the church functions best when its members are practicing their unique gifts for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. And when you're surrounded by other people, there's just great opportunity for growth because they are able to sharpen you and to call you out when you are maybe practicing some negative habits or some sinful habits, and you're also able to call them out. But also they're able to point out the good and the ways that the Lord is working in your life because we don't often recognize what he's doing in our lives, but when other people can tell you and can notice changes in your life, it's also a great encouragement. And you really only get that, you only get that experience in the context of community. And then finally, I would just say, Traditional meals around a table, that's a habit that my family set growing up and that my husband's family set growing up that we both really value and want to keep a main practice in our lives and in our family. Just making it a habit to eat meals with others is so important. Um, My family and I still eat meals with our families around the family dinner table, usually about once a week, but as our siblings continue to get older, consistency gets trickier. We all just have busier schedules, but our society really encourages individualism and isolation or convenience, but there's something really encouraging and special and humbling about eating a meal and conversing with others, especially with family around a traditional dinner table. So I think we need to repopularize family dinners around the family table. And I would always advocate for that in your life too. The next question says, who has had the greatest influence on your walk with the Lord? So I am so very blessed that this question is hard to answer. As hard as it was to pick a favorite dessert, it's even harder to choose the individual who has had the greatest influence in my life and on my walk with the Lord. My mom has always modeled biblical womanhood well and motherhood well. My dad has always been my greatest cheerleader and my coach through sports and life and faith. And I'm reminded often of my grandma Pat's legacy. She is the one that journaled often, but she diligently studied the word, journaled, and relied on the Lord through very difficult seasons of sickness in her life. So all three of those people are significant to me, and I could easily answer them. But I also walk through life every single day right now alongside Caleb O'Neill, who leads me in our home with gentleness and with integrity and with joy. Every day he reminds me that it is a joy to serve the Lord and to serve others for the Lord. So of course, when you do life alongside a spouse, it's up close and it's personal in a way that you inevitably learn how selfish you are and just how much growing you still have ahead of you. But Caleb's leadership in our marriage and home is so very gentle. And even when he's addressing sin in my life or unhealthy habits in my heart and life, he does so with grace. And that absolutely makes me love him and love the Lord so much more. The next question states, do you have any book recommendations for a couple to read prior to getting married? There are so many great books out there on marriage. 
too many for me to even remember and mention in this episode, but I firmly believe first and foremost that every couple should participate in some form of premarital counseling prior to getting married and your pastor or your mentor couple or a counselor may have more specific recommendations for you as a couple because they know you more personally, but there are a few favorite books that I will mention and those include Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ by John Piper and Justin Taylor, and What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. All of these are great books, and I would highly recommend them to anyone that's getting married. But another book that I have yet to read myself but has been recommended to me is When Sinners Say I Do. I believe that's by Dave Harvey. So like I said, I haven't read that one yet, but people I respect have recommended that one. So you may want to look at that one as well. So I would just recommend it looking all of them. You can read through their summaries and just see which one might be more applicable to your current season of life or applicable to what you and your spouse, future spouse want to study together before you get married. But all of those books are wonderful. Um, I would also say there is a book called Intended for Pleasure by Ed Wheat. That is another one I would recommend. I will say this book is entirely about sex and about sexual intimacy. So this one is definitely a read that you don't want to read too far out from your wedding. I would definitely read it closer to your wedding day, if not even after your wedding day. But it is a really helpful and informative read about sex that I have read that I recommend to people when I am talking with them about marriage, and I would recommend it to you as well. This next question might be the only question I received that specifically addresses theology. So this answer will be a bit longer, and we're going to dive into some theology. But The question is, is it sinful to be anxious? This is a great question, something I have wrestled with quite a bit myself. And to answer this question, I think we need to carefully define anxiety, fear, and worry. I also want to preface this by saying anxiety, fear, and worry can take on a number of forms in a person's life, and it may manifest itself differently in your life than it does in mine. While some listening may experience a mild form of anxiety or nervousness, others of you listening may really struggle with intense feelings of panic in which your body responds in a unique or confusing way. So we don't all experience anxiety in the same way, and it's important to recognize that right from the get-go. Anxiety and fear is also a topic that cannot be adequately addressed in a short Ask Her Anything question. So if you're experiencing intense feelings of panic or you would benefit from processing your feelings of anxiety with someone, I highly encourage just asking someone for help. It doesn't have to be a counselor. You could ask a woman, an older woman at church that you admire, or counseling isn't as scary as it seems that it is. I also highly recommend counseling if you feel that would be a good option for you. We'll get into that a little bit later and I'll provide some practical ways to seek out help on this topic. But from the beginning, I also just want to make sure I say that this is a question that deserves a lot more attention than just a single ask her anything answer in this episode. So maybe we'll address anxiety in a future 
podcast episode, and there's a number of people I could reach out to to address this much better than I can. So this answer won't be comprehensive, but over the next few minutes, I will just seek to present some general thoughts on the topic that will hopefully steer you in the right direction, or at least provide you with some additional resources to look into on anxiety if you're interested. So let's start with the main question, what is anxiety? I really appreciate how Dr. Jeremy Pierre, who is a professor at Southern Seminary, I appreciate how he addresses this question and the way in which he generally defines what worry is. I'll link the video that I'm pulling this definition from on my website if you're interested, but in this video he says, when we say that we are quote-unquote worried, we often simply mean that we are experiencing negative feelings associated with something we love or value being threatened. In other words, we feel that we are in danger of harm, injury, or loss, or someone or something we love is in danger of harm, injury, or loss because of some outside circumstance or something outside of us or in our world. You may feel worried because your life is at risk of harm when you drive on icy roads in dangerous winter weather. Or you may feel worried because you are in a financial bind and a comfortable future seems to be at risk. Or you may feel worried because of a very scary and very real medical diagnosis in your own life or the life of someone you love. All of these things can cause great distress in our lives, and I don't think the negative feelings we naturally experience in light of these external circumstances are necessarily sinful. The natural negative feelings we experience tell us that our world can be very dangerous, and if we didn't have feelings to signal this fact, we wouldn't know when or how to avoid harm. Our bodies wouldn't signal to us that we ought to drive cautiously on the ice or that we should steward our money well to prepare for the future. We were created with emotions and feelings, and these feelings can help us effectively navigate responsible living in the world around us. It's also important to recognize that in Luke 12, 50, Christ himself says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Christ here discloses that he experienced distress. Additionally, I am reminded of the anguish and the distress that Christ experienced in Gethsemane as he prayed before his imminent death. I do want to be careful, and I don't want to say that Christ was anxious or worried about his imminent death because I don't know that that's quite accurate. However, we are given a very vulnerable picture of our Savior as he wrestled with intense emotions in the face of impending need and danger and sorrow and threat, but he did this without sin. If, then, Christ experienced distress— we cannot simply say that all negative feelings associated with impending or potential threat that we experience, we can't say that all of those feelings are sinful. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Rather, we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And if Christ can rightly say that he experienced distress and he was without sin, then distress is not sinful in and of itself. And I believe it's possible to rightly align our own response to impending danger with his so that we are also not sinning as we experience these things. However, when we say that we are anxious or that we fear or worry something or someone is at risk of harm, we don't typically just mean that we recognize something is in danger. 
When we say this, we typically mean that we already made the observation days ago that that something is in danger or someone is in danger in a screening of every possible negative scenario has been playing in our heads since the moment we discovered that impending threat. Perhaps we haven't been able to sleep or we haven't eaten or we have isolated ourselves from others because of this ongoing battle in our minds. Now this, this feels like an altogether different question. That question being, is it sinful to allow worrisome thoughts of impending danger to fester in our minds without at least seeking to compose them or to contain them? That I would say, to that I would say, yes, that is sinful. And I would make that conclusion because of a passage like Matthew 6, 23 through 24, I'll go ahead and read that passage to you right now. So Matthew 6, 25 through 34 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven— Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." After hearing me read that passage, you might be saying in your head, Hey, Abigail, you just said it wasn't sinful to be anxious, didn't you? Now Christ is telling us not to be anxious. Doesn't that make it a sin? Yes and no. I do not think we are being told in this passage that we are sinning if we experience the initial feeling or emotion of anxiety, fear, or worry. I don't believe Christ is telling us to ignore our internal sense of what is dangerous and what is not. In fact, it seems to me that he's almost reminding us that each day will have enough trouble of its own. We can expect to feel in danger or at least feel at risk of injury or loss at times. What he is telling us, however, is that even in the midst of such danger, we need not fear because We're cared for by a God who is in control when we are not. We do not need to allow thoughts to fester in our mind because we feel we might be able to control our outward circumstances if we do. We do not need to avoid difficult things because we fear we might fail or let others down. We do not need to hoard material things because we fear that our needs may not be taken care of tomorrow. No, God considers us valuable and he delights in taking care of us. We can trust him, and because we can trust him, we can trust that nothing can ever snatch us out of his hand. So, is it sinful to be anxious? I think it kind of depends on what you mean when you're using the word anxious, 
But regardless of what you mean, we can trust that God is going to take care of us. And in the meantime, we can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and rightly align our own priorities so that we're not allowing ourselves to obsess over what could be. And for those of you that are interested in reading more on this topic, there are several books that have greatly aided me on this subject. Like I said, I can't fully address this question in this short podcast episode, but what I can do is provide you with additional resources that I will go ahead and link on my website. My website is abigailoneal.com. But two of my favorite resources that are at the top of my head are True Feelings by Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Whitaker. And then also, I believe it's called Running Scared by Edward T. Welch. Both of those are great books that have aided me, have helped me understand my own experience of anxiety and worry, and I would highly recommend them to you as well. If you are someone that is interested in seeking out additional help on this particular subject, if you just want someone to talk with or a counselor to meet with to discuss your feelings of anxiety and worry or even depression, I would recommend maybe beginning with your local pastor. So ask the pastor of your local church if he has any recommendations or if he can connect you with anyone that is in the area, whether they're a biblical counselor or maybe he there's someone in the church that he has in mind that you could meet with. You could also reach out to the women's ministry leader of your local church. She might have recommendations or she might be willing to meet with you herself. But in general, I would just say, don't be embarrassed to ask for help. It's normal to experience things like this. And if you allow them to fester within you as you're isolated from other people, I can guarantee it's not going to get much better. But the church is built so that we can support one another and we can um, connect you with people that will help you overcome these feelings of anxiety and worry. And you may not ever fully overcome those feelings that you may not ever be able to fully control the way that your body responds. So for example, when I'm anxious or nervous, my heart starts to race or um, my body just reacts in different ways. And even though I have pursued help and have talked with counselors and talked with mentors, I still have those feelings sometimes and I can't be fully in control of my body's response. But what I have learned is that even when I can't fully control my body, I can be in control of my mind and I have more control over my thoughts and my mind than I think. And so meeting with someone might not be the answer to fully get rid of those feelings, but you can at least learn how to process them and how to be in control of your emotions so that they aren't in control of you. The final question that I will address in this episode is, have you enjoyed your experience at seminary and would you recommend it to other women? So I have absolutely loved my time at Southern Seminary. Although it is exciting to be rounding the corner toward graduation this year, I'm also really sad that my time at Southern Seminary is coming to a close because I think I would continue classes forever if I could. Although it is nice to think that I won't have deadlines always on the back of my mind as I'm spending time with people or doing things that aren't homework, I, I know that will be a nice feeling. But 
In general, I have loved my time at at Southern Seminary, and I just really admire my professors. You can even ask my husband. I talk about them all the time and even fangirled over a few of them at at the Southern Baptist Convention this year. Um, There were a few that I had not met in person yet, and so when I saw them, I fangirled a little bit because I just think people that are that wise just... I don't know. They're just so cool to me. So I love my professors. I can also truly say that everything about my experience at Southern has been wonderful. So like I said, the professors have been wonderful. The education I have received has been wonderful. The tools for my own personal spiritual development have been exemplary. I and I really would not change a single thing about my experience. I would highly recommend a seminary degree to any other woman considering one, and I firmly believe there's a great need for enthusiastic and theologically sound, theologically trained and equipped women in our churches, and a seminary like Southern Seminary, that's a great place to receive that education and training. There are also a lot of different options available now for women. So you might be thinking about pursuing a master's and there's two different options. You could do a master's of arts or you could do a master's of divinity. A master's of arts would be a shorter degree. You wouldn't have to go to school for quite as long, whereas a master's of divinity is typically completed in about three to four years. I think on average, I think most people do it in about four years. But um, so depending on the amount of time that you want to spend on your education, there are different options. There's also a lot of different concentrations now. You could study biblical counseling or women's ministry or missions and evangelism or even worship and discipleship ministry. There's so many different concentrations out there. So whatever your interests are, I'm sure there's some sort of degree that you could pursue that would be a good fit. But really the only thing, I know I said I wouldn't change anything, but there is one thing coming to mind, and that is just that my seminary experience has been wonderful, but I, because of just the particular season of life my husband and I have been in, I wasn't able to move down to Southern Seminary to, to take classes in person. And if I could have taken classes in person, I would have done that. If I could have done all of my classes in person, I would wholeheartedly jump into that without hesitation. But because of just the season of life that we are in and the ministry that we were called to, we couldn't move down there. So I was able to take a few modules classes and I think I there's maybe a couple opportunities for me to do a few more but those classes I go down in person for and it's only about a weekend long but most of my classes are online so I don't get that in-person face-to-face class time with all of my professors I only get that with some of them and I definitely would take classes in person if I could so if you have the opportunity to take seminary classes in person over online definitely recommend that but um Yeah, in general, I would say just do it. My experience has been wonderful, and every professor, classmate, and teaching assistant has truly worked with me in a way that I felt valued, and they treated me and valued me as a fellow sister theologian, and they provided opportunities for me to grow and to succeed as a female student. So definitely, if you are considering a seminary degree as a female go for it. Don't be intimidated. You are valued and your professors and your classmates will value you there too. 
But the end of that question wraps up the rest of this episode. I just so appreciate the support and the encouragement that you all have offered as we have taken this journey of a season one of a brand new podcast together. It has been so exciting and I am just so very thankful for each of you that listen and that have offered advice and input and that have sent in questions for me to answer. It was so much fun to prepare for this episode and to think about your questions. So thank you for submitting them. I will look forward to our next Ask Her Anything episode, which will be in the next few months. But until then, there is one more episode for the fall season coming soon. I don't believe it'll be next week. It'll probably be closer to the holiday season, but it is holiday related. So it should be really fun. And it's an episode where I am interviewing two people that I really admire and that are very special to me. So stay tuned for that episode in coming weeks. And until then, have a great week.